Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My guest today is Ryan Bolton, the founder of Bolton Endurance Sports Training and the Harambe Project based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In 2000, Ryan represented the United States in triathlon at the Sydney Olympics and then went on to compete in long course triathlon racing where he had many international victories in Olympic, half, and full Ironman distances. Ryan has a BA in exercise physiology and a master's of science in human nutrition with an emphasis on stress metabolism. Ryan is also a high performance advisor to USA Triathlon and works closely with the USA Triathlon coaches and athletes headed to Tokyo. I hope you enjoy the show and learn a few tips that may help you with your own race day preparation. Ryan Bolton, thank you so much for joining me today on the on the Coachcast. You bet. Great to be here. And Ryan, we have been waiting for this conversation for five years now, normally a four-year cycle, but the Olympics coming up, obviously delayed because of COVID. Gosh, I can't imagine what your whole last two years have been like helping uh, athletes prepare for the Olympics. But uh, tell us more about uh, your role at USA Triathlon and help how you're helping out uh, the Olympic team. Yeah, so uh, it has been a, a crazy cycle this time because the addition of uh, the, the additional year in the COVID year certainly threw some curveballs into everything. You know, at going the 2019 season, you know, all athletes really were thinking that in 2020, uh, you know, the Olympics were going to happen, and we had, you know, the Olympic test event was in 2019. Our selection process criteria for USA Triathlon started in 2019. So then. When COVID happened, uh, you know, uh, points were put on hold for for World Triathlon. Points were put on hold. Um, our criteria um, had to be modified just slightly, uh, you know, for selection because obviously the selection race, the 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 the, uh, the second automatic selection race, had been moved out an entire year, um, and you know it had a different impact on athletes too. And you know, for some athletes, I think it was negative. It, you know, they, you know, they were maybe, you know, on a roll and in a rhythm and, you know, had their idea of being in Tokyo in 2020, whereas others, it gave them another year of development. Um, and, you know, which is probably beneficial. And I, I think that really, um, all the athletes that were, that are on our team at this point, which I know we'll discuss later, um, the year was ultimately a beneficial year for them in very different ways, but I, I do think it benefited all of them. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, with USAT is, you know, I've been with USAT for a few years and my role with them is I'm the high performance advisor, which means that I work with um, all the national team athletes and all the coaches of the national team athletes um, in an, an advisory role. And I also, uh, that advisory role also goes into just even working with the staff at USA Triathlon. And when you say, what does that advisory role mean? It's uh, anything uh, from coaching, physiology, technology, uh, working with liaisons at the USOPC, um, I'm kind of the person that coordinates all of that and communicates all of that. So, and, um, yeah, it's a really fun position and, uh, I get to interact with a lot of really great athletes. And, and to me, that's, that's the biggest bonus. 
Yeah, it definitely sounds like a, a kind of a dream position for yourself. And, you know, you yourself are an Olympian, uh, having gone to the Sydney Olympics 2000, first time triathlon was ever in the Olympics. Uh, so, so how did you have a high performance advisor back then working with you from USA Triathlon? <laughs> No, it was uh, definitely way more in its infant stage at that point. And uh, yeah, it, it, the sport was different. I mean, even the racing was different. But yeah, definitely not. The, the athletes now have so much more support, both you know financially, but also um, just with resources through tri USA Triathlon now. It blows me away, you know, how much of a difference it is. But I also think, you know, the circuit is more complicated now, the, the World Triathlon Circuit you know, the way that points are calculated, uh, the racing, like people often ask me, you know, how, how, do, how do you, does the racing compare? And uh, I swallow my ego and I can tell you that the racing is at a completely different level than when I was racing. Um, the swimming is faster. The biking, I think, is probably where the biggest change has been. It's just incredibly aggressive and incredibly oh. tactical. And, uh, and the running's faster too. And uh, like, I, I wonder if, if I was racing, you know, now, if I was back a 25 year old kid again, um, you know, how I would, how I would do in, in these situations, if I would have, you know, raised my game or not, but it's, it's a, yeah, it's a much more aggressive and, and faster, uh, sport and race now, which is really cool to see. Yeah. It seems like there's less room for any type of error in transition or even coming out of the water. I mean, positioning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially at the highest level, you know, at the WTS level, um, there's just zero room for error. Like you said, if you're at, if you want to be at the top of the game, you have to be very good in all three sports and maybe even exceptional, <laughs> I would say in one or two of them. And uh, yeah, and tactically and technically, you have to be really, really on top of it as well. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And how about and are you going to Tokyo? I am. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually, you know, final preparations are basically happening right now. Um, it's been because Tokyo, because of COVID and, you know, the, the situation over there and the way that the Olympics is playing out, there's definitely been um, some additional logistics involved. And, and not only that, but also communication of those logistics has been a little bit slower than normal. I mean, Japan you know, they're really on it and they're really organized and they're really structured. And I think that's a great thing. I can't imagine if this Olympics were going off in, in many other places. Uh, I don't know if they would have been able to pull it off the way that Japan is pulling it off. But yeah, our team in general is heading over um, anywhere between the 18th of July and the 20th of July. Yeah, really cool. And I know certainly some of them are here in Boulder, which I've seen out training on the roads. Yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. So yeah, we have three of our five Olympians right now are actually training in Colorado. Um, one's based in Colorado Springs, that's Kevin McDowell, but he is up in, uh, in Boulder training with, um, really with our other Olympians. He's training with Morgan Pearson, who Morgan lives in Boulder, and he's our other male Olympian. And then Taylor Nib also is based in Boulder right now. Uh, you know, she graduated from Cornell last year and now she's, um, yeah, she's living and training full-time in Boulder, which is great. Um, our other two Olympians, Summer Rappaport, she's, uh, based in Europe and she's often based in Europe and this year she is. And so she's going uh, straight to Tokyo from Europe with her coach and, uh, and as is, uh, Katie Zafaris, she's also based in Europe and, um, and she's going straight to Tokyo from Europe. Uh, Summer's in Portugal and Katie's in Spain. 
And, uh, but yeah, they, they're, they're doing, everyone's doing all of their prep and getting ready to get on airplanes and get into Tokyo. Yeah. Super. So there's three women and two men. Is that the maximum number, you know, three allowed and, and why only two men? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it, it's an incredibly long and complicated answer, but we are, <laughs> countries are allowed up to three athletes in the individual race. And, um, and our women, it's based on ranking. It's based on Olympic rankings, which are based off of basically two years of World Cup and World Triathlon Series level races. And I know that those are kind of like a bunch of jargon right there in itself. But um, our women are ranked really high. We have a lot of women um, ranked very high. And so we somewhat easily, I would say, got three spots for our women. Our men it was really complicated. And, uh, in 2019, at the end of 2019, we had three spots, uh, very confident that we were going to maintain three spots. Uh, COVID happened and this year things did not go as we planned or as we wanted. And we also, there were some race issues almost, you could say with where races could happen and who could get into those races based on COVID protocols. And anyway, uh, it was down to the wire and it came down to the very last weekend of Olympic uh, points qualifications that we lost our third spot for our men. And so unfortunately, we only got two spots for the men. Um, you know, other countries, of course, uh, have, you know, either three spots or two spots or one spot. Um, there's the additional component this year in Tokyo, which is brand new, is the mixed relay. So if you had a qualifying mixed relay team, for the games, you automatically got two men and two women spots, no matter what. But anyway, at the end of the day, we oh. ended up with, yeah, three women and two men. Hmm. So obviously, I think the topic of Tokyo across all sports that are outdoors uh, is going to be the heat. Yeah, absolutely. certainly potentially might be, you know, one on paper, you know, the hottest Olympics uh, and most humid, I'd imagine, that we've ever seen. How has this played into preparation um, for the athletes leading up to this year's games? Yeah, it's been huge. And, you know, it's really been a topic since uh, the day after, you know, the 2016 Olympics in Rio. And I mean, even before that, when Tokyo was announced, um, you know, people knew, wow, Olympics in Tokyo in July, it's going to be hot and muggy. And, you know, in an endurance event um, like the Olympic triathlon, uh, heat is going to be a big factor that we need to both uh, plan for and also train for, and then also be prepared for on race day for mitigation in that regard. So it adds a bunch of different components. Fortunately, you know, being in the States, we have some amazing access to facilities and testing. Um, almost all of our athletes have been to the USOPC in Colorado Springs, where they have a heat and altitude chamber. And the neat thing about that chamber is you can, well, you can do testing in it, of course, but you can take it to various levels of elevation, but you can also take it to exact, like precise levels of temperature and humidity. So, you know, we know exactly what the average temperature and average humidity in Tokyo is on the day that the races are going to be. So, you know, those are the numbers that were plugged into that chamber so that we could actually do testing on athletes. And some of those athletes are actually still using that chamber for acclimatization protocols, our, our uh, Colorado-based ones. Some of them have popped in there and down there. I mean, we use that chamber to help develop the Olympic suits, you know, that they're racing in, um, but also huh. to create protocols for each of them uh, for, um, you know, their acclimatization. Not everyone used it. And I can say that of the five athletes, all five athletes have different coaches 
and all of those coaches are approaching, you know, the acclimatization process, you know, slightly differently, just based on, you know, their experience and who they're consulting with, et cetera. But I can tell you that every single one of our athletes has both done testing and is also smack in the middle right now of a, of a heat acclimatization like protocol. And what would that entail? I mean, is that seven days a week or three days a week, uh, you know, 90 minutes, 20 minutes, sauna? Yeah, what, what it's, a great, it's a great question. And people go about it in a couple different ways. But, you know, there's kind of two ways that you can do it. You can train in heat or in heat chambers, of course. Um, oftentimes that training, I mean, if you look at the science, it's, it's often um, like kind of a good rule of thumb. And like I said, everyone I know is approaching this slightly differently. But um, you know, five-ish days a week, and you only have to be like an hour or so those five-ish days a week, but it has to be in hot temperatures. We're talking 95, you know, plus uh, Fahrenheit. And, uh, and you know, with if you can add humidity, which some athletes do in their heat chambers, then, you know, that's an extra bonus. Um, and uh, yeah, usually those sessions, and I think this is an important part of it. And if you look at most research, those sessions are not your hard sessions. Those sessions are your more aerobic sessions and you actually still get the stimulus. And the reason why is because, I mean, as you know, and probably a lot of listeners know, if you try to simulate uh, heat uh, acclimatization in, you know, in, in hard workouts, you're just going to a probably cook yourself. And also the quality of those high quality workouts is going to go down significantly. So um, there is some acclimatization at high quality workouts, but it's less than um, what athletes are doing at aerobic. And then the second part of that that people do do and you can do and is really easy to do no matter where you are in the world is what you talked about is the sauna protocol. And, um, you know, that's actually, you know, sitting in an incredibly hot room for a specified amount of time, a specified, uh, you know, times of the week, et cetera. Um, the, the interesting thing about all these protocols is they don't have to be a for full heat acclimatization just for acclimatizing to the heat um, because there are other pieces of it, but just acclimatizing to the heat, it's not a super long process. You know, it's not like you have to do it for a 12 week period. You know, athletes can start it, um, you know, eight weeks out or even, even, you know, four or five weeks out, and it can still be highly effective at having them acclimatized for the heat. Well, that demoralizes me because I had a few of the athletes pass me on my ride yesterday. And if that was their easy ride <laughs> and it was, oh, yeah. it was like 99 degrees, but it was hot though. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. So yeah. And yeah. And I mean, and I think, you know, that's the thing is like, I mean, yeah, there's different ways to incorporate it in and perhaps they were actually intentionally doing a heat session and it was one of their higher intensity heat sessions. And, you know, I just know the coaches probably during a session like that, you know, they're allowing for more recovery afterward and everything. It's a delicate balance, you know, as you know, because you clearly want to have the athletes ready, you know, for the heat, but you, in addition to that, you don't want to, you know, cook them in the meantime. So it is a very delicate balance. Absolutely. And then you, and then you consider the peaking process. We are two and a half or three weeks out from the event. Yeah. Getting close, um, very close, meaning yeah. they yeah, are probably pushing the envelope in terms of trying to do some type of overreaching, you know, to create some peak and then go into the taper how long would you imagine this taper would take? Or do you, do you think they're in or know of if, if they're in some type of a overreach period? Yeah, I would say all the athletes right now are like in full on, you know, prime time pushing very hard type training because, you know, once we get to Japan and, you know, like I said, most athletes arriving on the 19th uh, to 21st is basically arrival dates the women's or the men's race, I'm sorry, is on the 26th. Um, so, you know, they're only in Japan five days prior to 
uh, prior to racing and the, the women race on the 27th and then the mixed relay is on the 31st. So, you know, by the time they get on airplanes to Japan, all the work's been done. And, uh, you know, they've kind of went through these incredibly high intensity phases, which are happening right now. And, you know, they're kind of getting ready to shut down from there and, and rest and get ready for the race. So, yeah, I would say those people that you saw out on your ride yesterday, that was probably a very hard, very high intensity workout. <laughs> oh, good, good. That makes me feel better. Yeah, exactly. So when you got <laughs> dropped, you don't, yeah, you don't, you know, don't worry about it. It's just because they're really fit right now and uh, has nothing to do with your current level of fitness. <laughs> And just for those listeners, I was going up Left Hand Canyon, if you know Boulder, and a couple of them passed me. I, w- I was trying to hold 300 watts, and they were they were passing me uh, pretty good. So they were doing at least eight or 10 minute efforts. Um, how about at the race itself? And we're and leading up, you know, we're in the final hours of the race. First of all, what time are the races? Um, you know, time of day, and then are we doing any kind of pre cooling protocols leading into the race? Yeah. And that's, it's a huge part of our preparation and logistic, both logistically, but also, um, you know, just planning and knowing what's best for each athlete and the pre-cooling protocols are big. And I I think a lot of people listening have probably seen in hot weather and you're going to see it at the Tokyo Olympics. It's going to be a lot of the talk, especially, you know, in track and field in cycling, you're going to see it in triathlon. You're absolutely going to see it, but we do have, uh, cooling protocols in place where the, the races, they did, the, the races are very early in the morning. And the great thing about early morning is obviously it's, you know, some of the lowest temperatures of the day. The hard part about early in the morning is sometimes it's the highest humidity levels of the day. But regardless, like when you look at heat index, it's going to be the coolest time of the day from a heat index standpoint. But we're still talking, you know, potentially 90 plus degrees Fahrenheit with 80% plus humidity. So um, it's not cool. It's just better than 103 with 90% humidity or something like that. So yeah, so the pre-cooling protocol, Tokyo is unique, or this Olympic is unique in that um, there's a couple special considerations that they're taking into account on the course that they normally don't at any WTS race, and they've never at an Olympics before. But um, the first part of the cooling uh, protocol is to wear ice vests. And, you know, each of the athletes wear ice vests which, you know, the, the, uh, the concept of the ice vest is you wear a vest, you can actually do your warm up, So your muscles, your legs, your arms, you know, things that you're going to be using in the race, um, you can warm them up, but you can keep by wearing the ice vest, you keep your core temperature down. And the whole concept of this acclimatization, the whole concept of even the cooling stuff is the longer you can keep your core temperature down, the better. Once your core temperature starts getting up, above 39 degrees Celsius about, that's about the tipping point, which is, uh, what, 102 Fahrenheit or so. Uh, um, let me so see, 39, yeah, 102. Right, yeah. That's when you start seeing significant, uh, you know, uh, drops in performance. And uh, and also, you know, dehydration becomes an issue at that point and everything too. So in cycling, you're going to see before the events, guys are going to be on turbo trainers wearing ice vests. You know what I mean? In track and field, you're going to see athletes warming up and or wearing right before the event. And our athletes have in Tokyo, they're allowing the athletes to wear ice vests all the way to the start line of the swim. So we'll be at the swim and they'll basically, they're going to call them to their spot. They're going to take off their ice vest and hand it to me. And then we'll take it back and put it in the cooler. The other unique thing about Tokyo that they're allowing is on the run, um, you know, normally there's just normal aid stations and it's not a, you know, it's, it's just like a normal thing, but on the run, they're allowing for, 
uh, a special needs station, I guess you could say, and it's a cooling station. So athletes are being allowed and it's about at the two kilometer mark into each loop, four loop run, 2.5 K. I can tell you it's a critical part of the process. There's a lot of planning involved with that because, you know, each athlete kind of like has a specific want and or need with their cooling or, you know, or a method that they're comfortable with. And you can, you know, you can imagine what it is basically like it's the, you know, when you think about the Kona Ironman, it's like, you know, the grabbing the ice and throwing it in your jersey and under your hat type thing. And, you know, maybe a little more technical right. than that because we have specific things. And, um, but, but yeah, they're allowing that in Tokyo, which I think will be really beneficial for people who plan for it properly. Yeah. And, and nothing, uh, you know, I assume nothing special on the bike. No, but you know, they're allowing us, this is another interesting thing is they're allowing us to place water bottles on the athletes bikes normally athletes have to do that for themselves but after the start goes off they're actually allowing us as staff members to put water bottles on the bikes because if we have them pre-cooled which we will in you know either an ice or a slurry type situation because once again when they get on the bike they're coming out of the water um you know they're already hot and that's one interesting thing about tokyo too is the water temperature in Tokyo is like almost at the the legal limit basically to have a competitive swim. It's really, really wow. warm. Uh, certainly not wetsuit legal, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's 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 a really hot swim. So right. core temp right away will go up. You actually, if you look at charts when when athletes use um, you know any type of uh, heat sensor device, you actually see in the swim you can see their core temperature. Um, go up and it really goes up, especially in hot water. And it actually, once they get on the bike, it goes down for a while. And I think it's because they get out, you have air. And even if it's warm air, you have air, huh. plus you have the wind, obviously, of the bike. So right. the core temp will go down. And then about, you know, halfway through the bike or so in general, it really starts creeping up again. And then on the run is where it really shoots through the roof. Absolutely. So back to the warm up, I assume they're having a covered tent or something for the, the trainers set up. They do. Uh, yeah. There's an athlete lounge, um, with, uh, and then, and then there's a place, yeah, where they have turbo trainers, those tents and they are tents, um, are air conditioned though. There's big air conditioners in though. So, you know, the athletes have the ability okay. to hang out in there and, um, you know, some of the athletes will, you know, maybe forego outdoor warm ups in that case, especially, you know, for the bike, it just depends on if they want to get out on the course. Cause there are outdoor warm up areas, um, you know, as well. Okay. And so the, the days leading up to the event, when you're in Tokyo, it's like, I think you mentioned five days on the ground. Are, are you imagining all those workouts to be indoors? So do you have indoor, you know, uh, treadmills available, you know, air conditioned space for, we do. The, you know, obviously you can swim indoors. Um, do you have access to, you know, swim bike run indoor air conditioned, um, facilities? We do, you know, that's a really great question because even pre COVID, what the USOPC does is we they rent a facility and the facility is like what what I would say it's like an Olympic training center um, but only in Japan and it's a public facility in Japan that then you know the USOPC rents basically um, from the Tokyo government or whoever runs the facility and that facility has a lot of indoor space um, at that space like I said it's a mini Olympic training center there's two swim pools. Um, there's a room with treadmills, there's a room with turbo trainers, uh, there's massage therapists there, there's physiotherapists there, there's a cafeteria there, a cafe there with, uh, with American chefs making American food, um, you know, to make the athletes happy. And we, 
we spend um, basically half the day there every day when we're there. We shuttle over there. The athletes do training there. Um, and it's a pretty amazing facility. Um, you know, we've, we've obviously had a look at it and we know what's available. The athletes know what's available. Their coaches know what's available. So they know how to plan their workouts. There are, uh, we do have outdoor training uh, capabilities as well that were organized by World Triathlon and by, you know, the local organizing committee. And, um, you know, those are at very specific times when we can be at those places. And, you know, some athletes will take advantage of that and other ones will just say, no, I'm going to stay inside. And then, and then kind of third on top of all that is we also have course familiarization days where athletes can get on the course, the actual Tokyo course. And it's, you know, it's closed obviously and all that stuff. And, they can get on the course and, um, they do that for the swim and the bike. They don't do it for the run, but, um, athletes can kind of run around there, but yeah. Um, but for Tokyo, it's been a, it, it, because of COVID, um, you know, they're, they're very restrictive. So our movement is significantly more restrictive than it would be during a normal Olympic cycle. So, you know, we have to go at very specific times and with specific people and on specific shuttles. So it's a little more regulated that way, but training won't be a problem. Um, we have tons of great setups for that. And, uh, yeah, and I, I think it will go super smoothly. Super. So getting to the course, um, you guys have raced this already in 2019 as a pre-Olympic event, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of the athletes, we actually were able to first see the course in, uh, in, uh, 20, I think it was 2018. Um, and they've kept it the same, which is fantastic. So we've been able to see it. We've been able to envision it. We didn't know exactly what it would look like, um, from a like surface standpoint. And I can explain that in a moment until, uh, the test event, which the test event was, uh, in the summer of 2019. And, um, that is, it is the exact course. Uh, of course, you know, when we were on it, we have video of the course. Um, yeah, we've done significant course analysis, especially of the bike course, every corner, you know, the angles of the corners, the grades, uh, you know, the places to, uh, to make a move, the places to sit in, uh, the places where attacks often happen, the places where, and that was the great thing about having a test event is we could analyze both of those events, the men's and the women's races and see, you know, what dynamics happened in those races and, you know, where the wind speed was from, you know, what the temperature was, you know, and how certain athletes responded and, all of that. So the, the huge value, and I would say this is the added value of having a year on top of COVID is we've been able to take a look at that, you know, and that data even more and analyze it even more and then incorporate it into current athletes, both training and ultimately racing plans. Um, but yeah, it's all the athletes. And I can say every athlete that uh, is on the Olympic team uh, actually raced on that course. So all of them have seen it in a race situation, which is really good too. Oh, wow. And I think unlike Rio, Rio had a good little climb in it, which <laughs> uh, tested the athletes. I think uh, is this is a flat course, but yet there's a lot more turns. It is. And that's exactly correct. This course. Yeah. Rio had two very steep climbs like, uh, you know, they were like, you know, 17 percent or something like that. Um, I was at the Rio, uh, the test event for Rio. And I just remember being on the course and being like, wow, like that was, it was really legit and, uh, very made for some aggressive cycling. Tokyo is a very aggressive course too, but because of you said, it's just, it's more technical. There's more corners. There's some narrow, you know, passages. Uh, there's some big passages. Some of the turn combinations are really tricky and there are opportunities for people to, you know, like I said, both attack and get away. 
and also people to get dropped if they're not paying attention. So um, the Tokyo course is, it's a technical course and uh, it's challenging technically, both the, the, the individual race course and the mixed relay course. It's, they've got, they both have uh, a lot of turns and, um, you know, 180s, um, some, some very fast, like 90 degrees after like a relative downhill, some pretty hard technical stuff. It definitely favors a cyclist who has good technical skills. Yeah. So not only do you need to be in the, the main group, but towards the front of it, because inevitably there's going to be splits. Unfortunately, there might be some just, you know, crashes and falls in some of those 180 degree turns. So um, talk to me about how you expect this race to play out. Yeah. Well, you know, the men's and the women's races may play out differently. Um, but uh, I do think, you know, Olympics are always interesting because they... I, <laughs> expectations are one thing and how it ultimately ends up playing out are another and and strange things happen in the olympics you know sometimes superstars who are normally a major factor in the race with you know with certain things that they're doing um etc because of, you know the way they control the race or the dynamic they introduce to the race they're not even in the race you know they they aren't there the field um you know sometimes isn't as deep as a normal wts level race because you know the most a country can send you know, say some countries have five really good athletes and they can only send three of those athletes. So it changes the dynamics of the race a little bit, you know, particularly on the bike. But I, I feel like, you know, in the Olympic race, like some things that always happen, the bike is always extra aggressive. People usually burn more matches than they normally burn. Um, but uh, there's also a lot of incentive to to stay away. And, you know, if, if packs do form, I would say in general, it may it may clump into smaller groups than general than than normal um you know even up front and in the middle you may see smaller groups as opposed to like one giant group of 50 people i think that's probably a common thing to look for and like i said kind of aggressive riding you might see people riding a little bit unusually and i think that's a big like takeaway people you know they just need to do what they're what they normally do and race the way that they normally race that got them there but that doesn't always happen at the Olympics. Sometimes people, they get overexcited and, and uh, it can create issues from both a crash standpoint, but also just like a technical standpoint on the course, which makes the run extra interesting, um, depending upon how many matches people have burned uh, earlier on in the day. Yeah, that was, that was my thought. I mean, if I were to play it out in my head, not even knowing the field, you can imagine like three very good technical you know, cyclists just being able to rotate very well in the straights and they can just, you know, they just flow through the corners because their technical skills, they can build a gap, but then how many matches have they burned and therefore on the run, you know, how much of a gap do they need uh, before they're caught? So um, that will be interesting to see if that kind of plays out that way. As, uh, you know, triathlon matures and especially in draft legal triathlon, I do think that, you know, you see more, uh, more countries approaching it a little bit more from a team standpoint. And, you know, they might have goals to send a guy up the road or to try to burn someone else out or to keep, you know, a certain pack away from another pack. And I think you're starting to see that more and more. And the other huge factor that this Olympic has, um, that is actually kind of in relation to the heat is there's the mixed relay event and, you know, it's a brand new event. Um, and it's, you know, it's only a few days, well, it's four days after the men's race, three days after the women's race. And, you know, a, a hot Olympic distance race can take something out of you. So I think you're going to see some people in some countries in the individual race 
you know, they're thinking ahead towards the mixed relay race and maybe saving some legs for that as well. And so it kind of adds this extra component, like even into the individual race. Absolutely. I never even thought of that. I mean, you know, somebody that might be coming in for 18th place, usually in running their heart out to get 18th might say, okay, well, I'm, 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 you know, it's okay to get 22nd here because I got to race in a few more days for, you know, where we can go for gold. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think that you might see that, like I said, once again, especially over an Olympic distance course and also in those types of conditions. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, me being a road cyclist at heart, I always thought the triathlon in the Olympics will inevitably somehow become more of a team event simply because of the draft legal, you know, and there's going to be one or two athletes on a team, you know, really working for that third athlete. So it'll be interesting to see if any nations really um, develop that as a tactic. Totally. Um, so yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because I have a, a pro cyclist friend and I don't talk to him very often, but every time when I do, he always asks that. He's like, why don't, why don't I see this more? And, and then his second question, I always think this is fascinating and not a topic for this call, but He's always like, why don't they make Ironman draft legal? That would be really fascinating. And I agree. <laughs> if you had an Ironman race that were draft legal, I mean, over 112 miles, like you, some really significant tactics could come into play and it could be really fascinating. Well, yeah, maybe Challenge will take that on or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. Unique event. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, the mixed relay, first time ever. Um, and we have a really good chance there. I mean, didn't we get silver in the last year's worlds and, or to, I think France won and we were, we were silver medalists. Um, yeah, we did. And, you know, we're, we're one of the top ranked teams in the world, just based on performances, you know, over the past, whatever, six years, um, since they've been doing mixed relays and, and, you know, cause there is a ranking system with the mixed relays too. We have, we have a really strong team and, you know, even now, and I think this is a big thing that's changed is like even selection criteria for the team, for the Olympic team, you know, it speaks of, it speaks of course of the individual race, but it also right. speaks of the mixed relay and, you know, athletes specific skill sets for that. And, um, because it's a different race, it's, you know, it's, it's a very short swim. It's 300 meters, a seven K bike. And in the Olympics, it's a two K run. So it's fast, you know, it's like, you know, 15 minutes of like all out racing and it's incredibly, incredibly tactical, um, both from a strategy standpoint, but also from a technical standpoint, um, you know, the courses are pretty aggressive. The bike course has a lot of corners, a lot of turns, and there's a lot of strategy at where you place certain athletes and, uh, you know, where they're going to excel, you know, how they can impact the race and, uh, you know, how you can, uh, basically help your team. And, you know, the order of the mixed relay, it goes female, male, female, male. And, um, you know, and each of them do the, that short triathlon that I just said, and they hand off, it's like a, it's like a track and field handoff. They actually slap hands, which is, um, pretty cool. And then they go through, but, um, yeah, we're, we've historically done very good in it. What's changed in the mixed relay. If you want to be one of the best teams in the world, you cannot have an athlete with any weakness. Weakness in the mixed relay gets exploited tenfold. You know, you have a mm. person who's not good technically on the bike that gets exploited big time, you know, by other right. athletes. You have an athlete who has a weak swim. That's going to really, it's just going to be glaringly apparent. If you have an athlete who's, you know, like maybe a really strong swimmer and biker, but they don't have a strong run, they're just like, it. they just don't make a good mixed relay athlete because once again, that that amount of time that they're going to lose on the run really exposes the team 
and um, and basically takes you out of contention, you know, for the race. So, you know, when when looking at mixed relay athletes, you look at athletes that are incredibly solid in all three sports, of course, and um, and you know, and and also very tactically and technically savvy as well. Those are really important characteristics. Yeah, well, the profile of the athlete, besides just having the the skill level is, you know, much more anaerobic. I mean, this is not, this is the opposite of an Ironman. I mean, a two kilometer run, you know, 8K bike, um, these are just well above threshold efforts. Yeah, super, super punchy. I mean, 300 meter swim too. I mean, you think about that. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it is, it's really a punchy effort. And, you know, it's interesting because I think when I first learned of the mixed relay, I was like, oh, so can we have two separate athletes or four separate athletes, two women, two men, you know, in the mixed relay event. And then, you know, whatever are six other athletes in the individual race. And it's like, no, you have right. to create your mixed relay team from athletes who qualify individually, which like I said, right. it throws a whole new dynamic into Olympic selection. Um, you know, who's making teams, you know, and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it's really created this thing. And like you said, some athletes, uh, can excel, um, really well, you know, say in an Olympic distance race and maybe not be so great at mixed relay and or vice versa. However, I can tell you this and, you know, just looking at the data, the best Olympic distance athletes in the world are also the best mixed relay athletes, at least right now, it's going to blow people away because it is so exciting. And it's, it's just so much fun. It's just such a, a neat form of racing. And the more you understand it, the, the even funner it gets. Yeah. I can't wait to maybe get to know it even better. I'm uh, definitely getting excited. Got goosebumps. <laughs> the races are already on my calendar because they're at, I think they're at like 6.30 a.m. or something here in the in the Western uh, mountain time zone. No, they're so, actually uh, they're actually time. like at uh, oh. like 5, 6.30 p.m. Um, in the United oh, States. Got it, got so it. It, it works pretty well because it's it's like, um, yeah, it's in the it's in the p.m. or late afternoon, I want to say, in the U.S. because it's the next day in the morning in Tokyo. So for viewership in the United States, it works brilliantly. Yeah, I'm psyched for it, psyched. Super cool. This is this is amazing uh, conversation. Getting behind the curtain, preparation for the Olympic team. Super cool. Hey, any uh, what kind of words of wisdom are you going to give these uh, first time? Well, how, how we have a couple. How many have been to the Olympics before? Actually, I think, I think the, Katie is the only. Yeah, is just Katie. Katie's been Katie's been to the Olympics before, and everyone else is uh, is a first timer and everything. And new. Yeah, yeah. You words know, of wisdom know, for the first timers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, for me and especially just coming from the Olympian is, or, or coming, you know, being an Olympian at one point is really not changing anything. You know what I mean? Approaching it, what you did to get to the Olympics is, is, uh, you know, what it takes to do well in the Olympics and, um, you know, yeah, not messing with stuff, like trying to keep stuff as simple and as, you know, controlled as, as possible relative to, you know, what you normally do. You don't have to, you know, do anything special or go out of the way, you know, to do some new fancy thing. I mean, you can just really focus on yourself, your race and uh, the dynamics of the race, just like you would any other race and, and get out there and kick butt. Awesome. Great words of wisdom for any, any listener preparing for a race, you know, just don't change it up race, race week or leading up to the race. Um, Ryan, thanks so much. Good luck. We'll be watching, cheering on uh, the athletes in Tokyo. Looking forward to it. Finally, five years later. Yeah, no, totally. It's going to happen and uh, super exciting. And yeah, I feel like we have <laughs> an amazing team that can do incredibly well. 
and uh, hoping to pull a few medals away from Tokyo. That would be really sweet. Cool. Hey, how can people maybe contact you or follow you? Any social feeds there? Um, yeah, I'm at um, on like Instagram, Twitter. I'm at Coach Ryan Bolton. My email is Ryan at boltonendurance.com. So those are easy ways to contact me. Great. Thank you so much, Ryan. And uh, good luck in Tokyo. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. 